his name is Luca. That's right, listener. Today we go into the Viali as we look back on the legend's career from the one and only Pizzicatoni to a champ at Sam to the big thing in Turin. It's all coming up in part one of a special double Galazzo on Gianluca Viali. Ciao, everybody, and welcome to another Golazzo. As is traditional, we're joined here by Gabriele Moncotti. Ciao, Gab. Hello. And tanti saluti a James Holmcastle. Bentonato. Merci. And what a great time to be talking about one of the greats, Gianluca Vialli, finally reunited with Roberto Mancini. His old partner in crime from the Sampdoria days. His goal twin. Crazy to think that there was a time when you could rock up to the stadium and watch Luca Vialli and Roberto Mancini play side by side. Yeah, one of the great strike partnerships, one of the great friendships, mm. I think, in the game. I remember going to interview Mancini when he was at Inter's second spell. I think they were playing Celtic and Vialli was on the plane. And we spoke and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to interview your twin, essentially. And he insisted that I kind of record a message and play it to him. Oh, that's nice. So, yeah. And uh, as you say, back together, Viali Capo Delegazione of the national team. So he's kind of team, team manager. manager, head of the, head of the party, mm-hmm. if you like. Sort uh, of the Adrian Bevington in South Africa. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's seen as more than just this kind of ceremonial role, I think, in Italy. Um, Gigi Riva had it for years and was always seen as a big part of making the... The atmosphere setting the tone at the national team kind of a big but laconic part of uh, of yeah. Gigi River, <laughs> yeah, of, 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 of the Azuri success. Gab, you spent how many years working with Gianluca writing that book, The Italian Job? I mean, we kind of rocked up here in the scepter dial at the same time, right. way back in the in the mid nineties. He is a footballer at Chelsea, and he is a freelance journalist initially. So I covered him throughout all his time there, and then um, I got a call from him. I remember I was at. I was at UEFA in Neon in, was in 2003, maybe, and I got a call from him, and he says, like, hey, so, because he was getting his um, pro license from Coverciano, and he basically said, look, I've written this thesis. I want to turn it into a book. I want to go do loads of interviews. Do, do you, you want to do it with me? You can help me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, do you have Filippo Ricci's number? No. Um, so I said, yeah, and I turned into the book, The Italian Job, which... Still available. Still available somewhere, yeah. Which Film rights still available. <laughs> but the reason it was fantastic, you know, it's probably the most rewarding thing I've done professionally. Sorry. Aside from this show. Aside from this show. Oh, yes, the joke, yeah. yes. Uh, other than taping these podcasts with you in Horncastle, um, is that basically what we do in the book, we go around to all the people who were the top managers and people in football at the time. And the great thing about doing it alongside Luca is he just rings up Sir Alex Ferguson or Marcello Lippi or Fabio Capello and says, hey, can I come by next week for a couple hours um, and can we just talk football? And so I accompanied him in this and everybody likes him. So every door pretty Did much like opened you, Gap? instantaneously. Uh, that's a different issue. Um, but, uh, but, but it was, it was tremendous and it was just such an eye opener. You know, we, we went to the Arsenal training ground and sitting around me, Luca, and, and Arsene Wenger after training, and then all of a sudden it's dark, and then you realize that apart from the security guards, like, you know, Arsene Wenger, Luca, and you are the only people left at the training ground talking about football. You know, similar experience with Sir Alex Ferguson. 
um, with so many of these guys. We even spoke briefly to Luciano Maggi, who probably he really explained how football was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he gave a different view. Okay, well, Luca, not an average football player in terms of skill or in terms of personality. Let's begin a look back at his career back at the dawn of the 80s. That's right, James Horncastle. The five years before you were born released La Mia Banda Suona el Rock by oh, Ivano yeah. Fossati. Do they? do they not play any other kind of music? Well, I think they do. But it is a big hit from 7980 when a 16-year-old called Gianluca Vialli has just joined his local club Cremonese. And uh, you're skipping. Well, it's okay, not so he true. joined that other the little club first. Well, but the reason is relevant. Because of his age? No, the reason it's relevant is the club that he joined before Cremonese has one of those names that sound, and it's a town, and it's right near where one half of my family's from, so oh, it's an area I know very, sake. very well. <laughs> and it's, and he's, as a kid, every time we drive by, we see the sign to it, and we'd be like, oh my God, what kind of weirdos and losers live there? Right. The town, of course, is known as Pizzighettone, which sounds absolutely <laughs> ridiculous and idiotic. And that was Luca's, that was Luca's first team. Okay. But he, I think he only had a very short time there before he, he was moved. there for a year, I think. Oh, was he? Yeah. Okay. Tell us about his background. People always talk about the castle. Yeah. But he does come from an unusual background for a footballer. And how much was that an issue, even for his family, him taking up a career as a professional footballer? All right. So there's a couple of things. So first of all, the, the area of Italy where he's from. It's near Cremona, which is also, again, where the Marcottis hail from. Mm. Um, and Cremona, is, it's about maybe 45 minutes or an hour south of Milan. But this is where you have the Po River Valley in the north of Italy, where things get really, really flat. Mm. It's all farmland. Cremona, also the city of... Cremona's most famous son is probably Stradivari, who made the violins. Mm. There's or, an amazing violin museum in there. It's is a UNESCO there? heritage site. Well, there's a, there's a kind of, I think, Japanese-designed auditorium as right. well. Yeah. With amazing acoustics. Cremona mm. uh, is also down... I mean, it's the kind of area where... I don't know if you saw the film Call Me By Your Name by Luca Guadagnino. Yes. That's, you know, if you want an idea Isn't of the kind of... Isn't that in Crema? Though? Well, it's in Crema, which is... Well, but they're well, kind which of... Which is Alessio Tacchinardi's town. But, yes, they are Ricardo kind of Ferri's, thing. And Ricardo Ferri's hometown mm. as well. Mm. But it's also the most famous... It's per rich farmland, essentially. Yeah. It's the poorest province in Lombardia, really? um, which is a little bit like, you know, being sort of the shortest Harlem Globetrotter. Probably the greatest female singer in Italian history uh, Mina. is from Cremona. Right. And she's still probably, alongside Stradivari, the most famous Cremonese. And Luca, of course. And Luca, of course. He has a lot of brothers. Was it an accepted thing that he was just going to become at 16 a, a I, professional player? I think because he's one of the younger ones. Mm. I think by he's that point, youngest, I think, yeah, yeah, I think he is the youngest. Actually, I think by that point they were like, okay, like they already know. had the priest, the lawyer, the doctor. Yeah, like we kind of we've kind of ticked these other boxes, and you know, I, I asked him, well, "What would you, would you have been if you'd not been a footballer?" And it's funny because the answer he gave me, and uh, at the time was, "Well, I like building things, or maybe an architect, or like," and he says, "Or more likely, a professional soldier." Um, which I thought was pretty telling. Not because he likes... He got to do that when he went to Juventus, of course. Right. Well, and, uh, yeah, the Marine. <laughs> but I, I, I think what moved him at the time was the fact that he liked the training, the physicality, the competition, the pushing yourself. 
you know, a lot of the values that you might see in the military, and obviously which are very much the reality in Italian football, especially in, in those years. So he's a young player at Pizzi... Pizzicatone. Pizzicatone. <laughs> and makes the move across to Cremonese. They're down in Ciuno, the third division at the time. Mm-hmm. They win a promotion. Who's the manager? Well, it becomes Mondonico. Mondonico. And because Mondonico is the coach of the youth team, uh, he then steps up, replaces the guy who gave Viali his debut. And Viali is a part of the side and the top scorer of the side, which um, gets promoted to Serie A for the first time in 54 years. Wow. And that was a time when, that was the 82-83 season, yeah. I believe. And that was a time, though, of course, where you, know, you became top scorer with like seven goals. Um, I don't know how many scored in City B that season, but ten. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a slightly, slightly different era. 1982, of course, was the year that you know, post World Cup, was the year of Platini, Bognac. Italian clubs are now allowed to have two foreigners. Um, they, they couldn't have any until 1980. They they go out there and, and they start bringing in loads of foreign players, and he's like. Well, I don't know any of these guys. I don't trust anybody to bring anybody in. So they actually started the season without without any foreigners, and everybody thought he was. Everybody thought he was absolutely mad. He just mm. essentially kept most of the same players from City B. They would sign players like not only Viali but uh, Lombardo. I think Prandelli before he went to Lombardo Atalanta. Lombardo came through Cremonese. Yeah, wow. and there was there was again one of those kind of preferential routes. Let's say what well, they call it now, and it's synergy between. <laughs> One of the big clubs and them. Right. Cremona and Cremonese would keep coming back into Gianluca's life insofar as his debut for Sampdoria was against Cremonese. Very much so. And the second leg, I think, of the 89 Coppa Italia final, they couldn't play it at Marassi because um, it was undergoing renovation work for the World Cup. And so they played it at Cremona. Wow. And that's where Samp beat Napoli, Diego wow. Maradona's Napoli. And one of his greatest ever City I goals was against Cremonese. And when I ask him, and I think it might be slightly wind up, slightly not, um, a guy who I'm sure nobody will remember, not even you, James, possibly, as a <laughs> scholar of Italian football history, some who the most gifted player he ever played with was. You expect him to say Mancini, probably, but no, he mentions... Dennis Wise. No, funnily enough. He mentions a guy named Alviero Chiorri, who was sort of this cult hero... You know, he's still very, very rude. And again, I go back to this, right? He he built a house there in a small town called Grumello. And it's just where my grandmother lived until she passed. That's where my dad grew up. I, I have a lot of affection for this place. It's not really the sort of place you would ever really want to go there by choice. Because in the summer, it's really oppressively hot. Um, simply because it's this like horrendous, very humid, hot microclimate. In winters... It gets really cold, and also you have major issues with fog. Mm. So it's not really a pleasant place to go unless you're, unless you're from there and are visiting family. But he still remained very, very much anchored to that place. And I should say, final point, James, is that as with Mancini, wherever Gianluca went, all of a sudden these teams that never won anything started to win things. So Cremonese get promoted. They become a yo-yo club. Of course, they're one of the teams that won the Anglo-Italian Cup, beating Derby County in the early 90s. Um, And, yeah, it was the same at Samp. It's the same at Juventus, who people think Juventus win every year. Since the beginning of time, they hadn't won a league title in nine years before Gianluca got uh, got there. And likewise at Chelsea later on. 
No it, history. No history. All right, know your history. In 84, the next step in Gianluca's path to glory, the move to Liguria and Sampdoria. That's right, Gab, it is Rigueira with the appropriately titled Vamos a la Playa, which is what Gianluca was doing. Boniperti from Juve called to ask your friend Luzzara Cremonese, can we buy Gianluca Vialli? They said four and a half uh, million pounds. I don't know what the equivalent would have been, what, 15 billion lira. And uh, Boniperti went, no, so he went to Liguria, the lucky chap, the, uh, the Riviera, possibly one of the most exquisite bits of uh, well, the Italian we, we peninsula. We know who recruited Vialli. I mean, it was Roberto Mancini, essentially, yeah. in that they played on the 21s together. And what Mancini wanted, Mancini got uh, at Samp. Mancho. And he met, uh, he reunited there with his uh, under-21 buddy, the Azzurini, together again, Mancini and Viali in a, in a pairing that was to be known as the Gemelli del Gol, the Gold Twins. That wasn't all he found at Sampdoria. He also found Trevor Francis, yeah, who Paolo Mantovani, the visionary Sampdoria owner brought in with Mancini back in 82 as part of his building towards Big Sui there as well and Graham Souness arrived Champagne Charlie same time as as Gianluca Vialli Graham Souness yeah they play together and they win in fact the the Coppa Italia the first trophy that I think Sampdoria had ever won came that same season as you say he arrives they start winning I think Souness scored on his debut he scored the bendiest free kick you're (laughs) ever going to see wow bendier than the Roberto Carlos, oh, trademark. No, no, I mean, he was much closer to goal. It wasn't hit as hard. And I, I remember as a kid uh, watching and hearing the commentator say, like, and I thought it was such an appropriate turn of phrase, something James Richardson would have been proud of. It was something like, Sunes mette il veleno nel pallone. Like, Sunes puts poison in his uh, in his wow. in, in the ball in the strike. I was going to say he also scored in the first leg of the Coppa Italia, two-legged uh, final against Milan, and uh, he scored away at San Siro, and then they beat them two-one in the return. Brilliant! What what a lineup that was. Paolo Mantovani, who was the the man, the the father of the golden era at Sampdoria, and also the father of Enrico Mantovani, rather less you know in football terms successfully, but he was piecing together an extraordinary team. The Equad coming in eighty-one. As I mentioned, Mancini and Trevor Francis in 82. You have Pari in 83, Viali, Manini, Sunas in 84, Cerezo in 86, Pagliuca in 87. And this was very much the, the strategy of, of Mantovani, his kind of genius, which was to invest in two or three of the best kind of under-23 Italian players every year. And this was a very good generation coming through as that Azelio Vicini on the 21 side, which would then become post-86, the kind of Italy side that I think a lot of people got familiar with, Italia 90. And that was a side, of course, that in uh, 1985 lost the final of the European under-21s, which, of course, as you know, to us in Italy, it's a big deal because well, we actually... used to win it all the time. Yes, because we actually win like competitions Five out of stuff. seven, I think, that um, you guys have won. But they didn't win in 1985 okay. because they reached the final and they were beaten by... A Spain team, which included, I believe, Michel and Butragueño and all those guys. Wow. They were beaten on penalties, and they were so cocksure and so confident. And lesson learned. But I think 10 of those 11, because Beppe Giannini was on it, a mm. whole bunch of guys who then went on to play for uh, 
uh, for the Italy side. Well, amongst them, Vialli and Mancini, who are now reunited at Samp, and they start winning things. Three Coppa Italias they win. They get all the way to the Cup Winners' Cup final against Barcelona in 89, where they take on a Barcelona team featuring Gary Lineker. Just to give an idea of how successful this Samp side was and where they came from, because Mantovani bought them when they were in the second division. And then I think they reach eight finals in the space of, of four years. Yeah, we're talking, I think, three Coppa Italia finals, whilst Viali's there. All three that they win, yeah. Yeah, two Cup Winners' Cup finals, mm. obviously and. the European Cup final, and mm. Italian Super Cups, we're talking European Super Cups as well. They were in a final, I think, every year between 88 and, and 92, um, which is still extraordinary, even when you look at the kind of players that they had. You mentioned some of them, but let's not forget who they're competing against. They're competing against the Inter side that the racked Germans. up a, a record points when it was two points for a win on the Trap and the Germans. You've still got Milan and the Dutchman, who, um, when they win the league, they are the reigning European champions. Maradona's Napoli, I mean, we could go on. Juve. Yeah. Even if they don't win every year. And also, and they're not just a really talented team put together, but I think... They're a side that's viewed with a nostalgia and a kind of, there's a glow about that team because they were such a, a wonderful group of players, the chemistry between them. People talk about the, the group that the Viale Mancini had, the seven dwarves that would come together every Thursday evening to play cards and shoot the crap with their friends. And uh, it, yeah. was, it was just, a, you know, they would dye their hair blonde. They would dress up as pirates. They would dress up as Europe. They would do all that stuff. They, I were, mean, I think, they were a breath of fresh air. I, I think one of the things about this was... Vialli had a slightly different background, possibly because he's sort of a natural extrovert. They all kind of embraced them, right? They were all likable. And there's incredible dichotomy between him and Roberto Mancini, where Mancini was super quiet and, in fact, shy off pitch. On the pitch, there was no question who the leader was, and it wasn't Luca. And he was very happy to sort of, to sort of defer that. I mean, neither one was the captain at the time. The captain was the uh, Pellegrini, the, the sweeper. Sweet. They added a sense of fun to everything, which meant that, I don't want to say they were everybody's second team, but it, among fans of the traditional big clubs, nobody minded if Sampdoria won, mm. you know, relative to everybody else. We also had an incredibly simpatico manager, Bujadim Boskov. Yeah, who I think is worthy of his own Galazzo episode yeah. at, at some point. But a, a man who'd coached everywhere, including in China. I remember him talking about explaining football to Chairman Mao. Okay. Because I, I, I was talking about like, Yugoslav. Did you say Chairman Mao? But he was already off talking about something else. But I mean, this was, all, I think, part of the great family atmosphere mm. um, that there was at, at Samp. I mean, Viali famously said that. Um, I mean, he is repeatedly courted by Milan and Juventus whilst he's at. Sampdoria, and he, you know, he said he'd go into these meetings with Paolo Mantovani, come out feeling, you know, 10 feet tall, mm. and would go to bed in Samp pajamas. And if he felt down, he says, Boskov would send him home to Mrs. Boskov, who would give him tea and uh, pasticcini. And it worked. Yeah, an incredible atmosphere. And I guess maybe it was a different time for football, but uh, Milan came in for him, Napoli came in for him, Juve came back in from Real Madrid, came back in for him. Famously, he turned down... Or the quote was when he turned down one offer from Berlusconi that uh, uh, it's very flattering, but you can't see the sea from Milano Due. Because that, that's another thing we should mention. There can't be a nicer place to live than In Milano Due. <laughs> than, uh, than that coastline. I mean, between Nervi and Boliasco, where the training ground is, it's just glorious coastline. You have the, 
the yeah, you got the, the sea the on one side, you've mountains, got wonderful the, mountains on the yeah, other. Yeah, you've Portofino as well. All you those little, I mean, Nervi as well, a lovely little town. And it depends, though. There's no sandy beaches. Yeah. That's the flip side. That's true. They're all rocky beaches. Well, they were having some fun. Uh, he, in the Seven Dwarfs, was known as... Which one was he? Well, Mancini was dopey. No? Mancini was dopey. Paolo Borea, who was the the architect of the, the team, was Doc. Oh, Gianluca was Pizzolo, which I think is... Uh, is it Droopy, the sleepy, sleepy one? Yeah. Oh, Sleepy, sorry, right. <laughs> not Droopy. <laughs> but I think, again, this is, this is the other thing, is that the Seven Dwarfs, they're not all seven players. No. There's the sporting director, there's the youth team coach... So, so yeah, it's it's again, it's very and yeah. Manini was another player who was in the group, but yeah, it was very much a mix. And then they were kind of the the central command and and of, of the team, and that was the, the the core around which everything was was built. And it, it, it was a click. It was a clickish team, mm. and I think it worked because of the people who were at the top of the click. Because I mean, there, there was definitely circles of influence, and in fact, I've never heard, I haven't heard the story from Luke. I've heard it from other people. Mantovani was in on this. He wasn't one of the seven dwarfs, but he made these little pins called the Cerchia Blue, the blue circle. And he gave them to people who were allowed to be in the blue circles. Mancini got little one. Little circle of trust. <laughs> Mancini got a little pin. Luca did not. Ooh. It was indicative of the fact that it was all kind of taken slightly tongue in cheek. That partnership on field and off field because they, they shared a room together and they were friends and they, they complemented they Each used to other go so like well. on jet skis, didn't they? That's that was, right. That was the other thing. They, I, I don't know whether they lived on the seafront, but they would just go down and get on a jet ski and just whiz around before training. Can't do that in Milano, do we? <laughs> you I mean, maybe can. you can. Oh, no, you've got the artificial lake. You can go and do that. Eight glorious years there where a club with very low expectations at the start began to win everything and anything, including finally in 1991, the Scudetto. I'm Kate Borsay and have I got a podcast for you? Well, yes, I do, because it's all about football and it's called the Offside Rule WSL Edition. It's hosted by me, Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper, a very fine combination we are too. And every week we get a whole host of different names and voices from women's football to talk to us about the latest news and action on and off the pitch. We've had England striker Nikita Paris. This is what we've earned. We've earned the right to be playing at Wembley. We've earned the right to be playing in front of 77,000. England goalkeeper Karen Bardsley. You said that you want to make goalkeeping sexy. How do you plan <laughs> about doing that? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I don't have to do much, do I? And Jay Montemuro joined us live from the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. For me, it just uh, indicates the growth of the league and uh, that uh, a lot of big players want to come and play for the big clubs in, in, in the WSL. If you like the sound of that, then search now for the Offside Rule WSL edition wherever you're listening to this and get some women's football in your life. The Offside Rule WSL edition, because women play football too. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. 1991 and Sampdoria, provincial side, founded when? 46 by the fusion of two clubs? Well, this is the thing. You've got the oldest team in Italy is in Genoa. And then you've got these upstarts, Samp, who are the part of a fusion. 
between San Pier d'Arenese from San Pier d'Arena, which and I have no Doria. idea what it is, and the Andrea Doria. And of course, as you'll recall, the Andrea Doria was also a famous ship, which sank, and years later, Geraldo Rivera opened the safe and found that there was nothing inside. Nothing inside. <laughs> right. Andrea Doria was one of the captains on Columbus's trip, wasn't he? Cristoforo no Colombo. I believe that's who Andrea Doria was, but I might be wrong about that. History fans will correct me. Anyway, there they were. What A team like that winning the Scudetto against, as you mentioned, all the big powers in Serie A. How big an achievement, how big a turn-up was that? Looking at their very successes over that period, he's top scorer, I think he still holds the record for 13 goals in the Coppa Italia. He's top scorer in the Cup Winners' Cup, I think, when they, when they go to the final and win it, and he scores twice. Uh, in the final against Anderlecht, and he's, he scores, what, 19 goals in this season when they uh, when they right. win the league. I mean, the, the thing about Viali as a goal scorer, if you go back, you notice that he was nowhere near as prolific as, as a lot of people thought he would be or as a lot of these golazos that we've done about a lot of these dudes who score a lot of goals. But he scored really spectacular goals, and he scored really important goals. I mean, he still scored a ton of goals as well. And I think... Part of that was down to him playing with Mancini, who's such a such an atypical striker, just his movement and everything. And I think a big part of it was also him pushing himself to try different things. It was this period, I think it was with the national side, where he had missed a bunch of chances and because he was always volleying the ball or hitting it first time. And I remember him being asked, um, why don't you just control it and then shoot? And he said, because if I hit it first time, obviously I gained that extra split second um, on the goalkeeper. Like he said, look, if I'm not scoring, I just need to finish better. It's not a question of not shooting first time. It's just a question of me improving. And I think that really marked the ethos that he liked to give out. You know, He had sort of the, the, the big curly hair. And then I remember the 1986 World Cup, which is when he was called up into the national side. And obviously this being Italy, the magical country where you're young until you're 50. The 86 World Cup was a summer that he turned 22. It was born July 9th, 1964. And so you would think a guy like Viali today, or if he were English, he'd be like Raheem Sterling. He'd have like 50 caps by, by that age, right? But back then, you know, you had to go earn your way. So well, no, even to this day, you're young in Italy until you're 28, you know. No, you're young until you're well beyond 28. <laughs> but, um, but, but I remember at that World Cup, I think Italy had, I don't know, it was like Galderizi up front or, you know, who... He kept coming on for Bruno Conti. Yeah, he kept coming on on the wing, right? Because, oh, you know, the kid needs to run up and down and work hard. And he did whatever was asked of him. So I think he always saw himself as like a fully rounded footballer hmm. and not just as a center forward. It's his goals that win them their first ever trophy, their first ever international trophy, sorry, I should say. Mm. In fact, their only international trophy, the Cup Winners' Cup in 1990 when they beat Anderlecht in Gothenburg 2-0, a brace from Gianluca Vialli. In penetrazione Mancini parte il cross, goal! E goal, a goal di Vialli, goal! Gianluca Vialli, goal! Della Sampdoria, 2-0. Rivediamo... Set up there by, by Mancini. And then in 91, as we say, the Scudetto, which was sealed on the 19th of May, 1991, with the game against Lecce. And the celebrations, James. There's so much to get through here, James, because on the day they actually win the league title and they're at Marassi, they put on wigs, don't they? And they say it's such a miracle that even Lombardo and 
think Viali have, have sprouted hair again. Um, and then at so the actual... If you were here, you would point out that he had hair at the time. Okay. He just chose to shave his head. Yep, just well, as it, James it was, does. That was the you first know? time that I'd heard this idea that if you shave your head, it, it strengthens the roots. And when he shaved his head, it was a big thing. And people were kind of, what's he doing? And 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 that was the reason that he wanted to stave off baldness. He was taking on baldness. Mm. A fight, this fight that he wouldn't win, but others, thankfully, he would. And then they had a big party in uh, in the city in Genoa, mm. and um, they basically announced that Europe, the band, by the final countdown, were going to play. But it wasn't Europe who were playing. It was basically the Sam players, all dressed in wigs, dressed Backed as by Europe. Italian rock act, the New Trolls. Yeah, <laughs> one of your favourites, James. One of my favourites. But uh, yeah, amazing scenes as this played, and uh, Lombardo. Uh, his wig falls off His as he goes into a off. guitar solo. It's yeah. magnificent anyway. It's the it, best thing on YouTube that features Lombardo after the Lombardo. Ah, yeah. that, yeah. All right, well, Europe, the final countdown. And as it turns out, Luca's final countdown was already underway because he plays another season at Samp. But by this point, Palamantevani, I think it's fair to say, has decided that it might be time to cash in on his most valuable player, rebuild the team with the money, and thus he accepts an offer from Juventus. So summer 92, after eight years, the, the kind of the romance has finally ended. But there's one more game to play, and it is the European Cup final, which Sam, having won the Scudetto in 91, have battled all the way through to the last game at Wembley, where they are taking on once again the side that have beaten them in that Cup Winners' Cup in 89, Barcelona. Not just any Barcelona, James. Not just any Barcelona. It's the El Grand Dream Team. <laughs> okay, so... Of the Johan Cruyff. Johan Cruyff, so, Barcelona. Some of the names involved include Christo Stoichkov, Michael Laudrup, Ronald Koeman, and a young Pep Guardiola. And Chapi Ferrer, of course. Well, who would so many other players. Who would, Chapi Ferrer would later join Luca, uh, obviously, at Chelsea. And I remember in his sort of first unveiling at the press conference... You know, he was asked about the 92 Cup final, and Gianni says, yeah. And then and somebody asked him, like, do you remember who who, who missed what should, have, what should have been the winner at the end of regular time? And he starts laughing, and he says, like, yes, my new boss. You right. know? Yeah, Vialli misses a couple of chances. Sam didn't play well, I think no. it's fair to say, in that game. But Paliuca was their best player. Huh? Yeah. And Vialli himself misses a couple of chances. There's a Mancini sets him up for one, which he puts over, and there's another chance which he, he puts wide to... Um, Bruno Pizzo's consternation. And then in extra time, it's goalless and it goes to the extra period. And there's a nothing foul by Ivano Bonetti. So basically Bonetti controls the ball on the ground and the Barcelona player who goes in for it then just basically hacks it a couple of times and falls over Bonetti. Is it Pep? no, it's Chiki Bergerstein. Oh, really? Yeah. So he goes down, the referee blows, and Mancini just gives the referee a look like, are you kidding? Because I think everybody knows what's happening now. Uh, Viali, who I think by now is on the bench, can't watch, and uh, Ronald Koeman steps up and bosh. There's your last game with Sampdoria, ending in the worst way possible. Match finishes with Luca with his head shrouded by a, a damp tile. Mancini's in floods of tears, and it's all come to an end. 
Oh, Boscov leaves as well. Boscov leaves as well. Spain is coming in. I mean, they have some good times afterwards. I'm not going to say they didn't, but something very special ended that day. Next stop, Grey Somberturin at the foot of the Alps. Mare Mare by Luca Carboni, which I like to think was on Gianluca's mind as he drove northeast up to Turin, away from the Ligurian coastline and towards his new reality, Gab. When he moved to Juventus, he still didn't have an agent. And he had no idea how much, you know, he should be getting paid by Juve. And, you know, agents had already cropped into the game. So he asked Mantovani not just to negotiate his transfer fee, (laughs) but to negotiate his wages at Juventus, which, you know, today is like the biggest conflict of interest in the world, but that was the level of trust. And if you want, in some ways, maybe some would call it naive, you know, to do that. It's, it's unthinkable today, but Mantovani went and negotiated Luca's four-year deal at Juventus, you know, sitting across the table. I don't know if Moji was already there no. infecting things, no. but... Because well, he goes he, to play on the trap, traps his first manager there, and yeah. this was pre so the this, triad. This is the thing, it's a He's left the Samp family behind. He now arrives at this club, which he's got... I mean, where before, he, it was an automatic selection, him and Mancini up top. Now he's got Baggio, Casaraghi, who else? Uh, Di Canio's there, Andres Muller. Also, he's arrived for 45 billion lira. I mean, it was yeah. a world record fee at the time. Yes, I mean, this is the same time as Lentini's going to yeah. Milan, no? So I'm not sure. I think maybe Gianni was first and then Lentini uh, broke uh, it. Certainly the in the build-up to the, the 92 European Cup final. There's an issue in that uh, essentially this these two big transfers are overshadowing San Barcelona. Right. There's more interest in what Juventus and Milan are doing in kind of the transfer market than there is in Samp actually being in the European final. So he's arrived with this massive price, that classic story, and all of a sudden he's not really finding his feet. There are injury issues. Things go so badly in terms of him scoring that Trapattoni essentially tries to turn him into a midfielder. Do you yeah. remember that in the night? Yes, I do. So he was 28 years old at the time. Is he already 28? It's he remarkable. Is, July 9th, 1964. <laughs> right. Um, he was actually born to the day, four years before Paolo Di Cagno. Okay. Same day. Same birthday. Um, and the, the, the curious thing about this, and this is something that you see a little bit, there's a weird parallel, and whenever I bring it up, he gets a little annoyed. I can see why. With Wayne Rooney. Because it was around that age that Wayne Rooney kind of stopped being what he was and him saying like, well, you know, maybe I can play midfield when my legs go and stuff like that. So that was kind of the aura that was created around it. And, oh yeah, look at him. He can play in midfield because, you know, he doesn't have the acceleration that he had and it did not go down well and it did not work out well. Right. But for those first two years, he, he, he doesn't work out well either. He's not scoring a lot of goals. And it's not until Marcello Lippi arrives in 94 that things really change. And boy, do they change. And the, the first meeting that they have, I think Viali basically says, I want to go back to Sampdoria. And he'd worked with Lippi. Oh, I say he'd worked with Lippi. Lippi was at Samp when, when Viali first moved there. Was he what? Lippi in charge was, of the youth team? was in charge of the Primavera and oh, okay. he used to catch cigarettes off Lippi. So they used to get on <laughs> quite well. And Lippi, I think, basically says to him, you know, why would I sell the best Italian striker? Why would I let that happen? You're going to be a big part of this team. Persuades him to stay. And obviously... He's part of not only a side that wins the league title, but wins the Champions League, the, the European Cup that he, he couldn't win with Samp. What a, what a Juventus captain to do it as well. So true. The lineup 
is extraordinary. I mean, Lippi basically goes with three up front. It's Ravanelli and Viali, the classic formation with, at first, Baggio and then Del Piero. And it kind of ushers in a new way of, of doing it, particularly from the forwards' point of view. I mean, they they press high, they work hard. They're a different kind of concept. Yeah, it's it's very much high energy, right? So in, in Italy, you have this sort of endless preoccupation about, oh, mustn't put too many attacking players on the pitch, otherwise who's going to defend? And Lippi kind of cuts through that and says, well, hey, I mean, I, think, I wouldn't quite call it pressing as we know it because it wasn't necessarily a high press. What it was was they had the three guys up, but they would take turns coming back to midfield, tracking the fullbacks, you know, doing a lot of the things that we take for granted today. But wasn't necessarily the case in a lot of football back then where, you know, there was this belief that the, the, the striker had to stay, had to stay fresh. And they were also a side that simply had more energy and were just often physically stronger than most of the opposition. Vieta used to say that, you know, he wasn't the fastest guy, but he would sprint 20 times a game. And the difference is if it was him against a, a center back, you know, the first 10 times the center back might beat him, but the 11th time, Luca would beat him right? because his 11th sprint was only marginally slower than his first sprint, whereas everybody else, their stamina would go down. Right. Because fitness was such an extraordinary, and you can interpret extraordinary however you want, but extraordinary feature about that Juventus team. Obviously, this became an issue with the court case later on featuring uh, Dr. Agricola, but... One, Get out of the pharmacy, James. They had a pharmacy worthy of a small hospital. <laughs> but without doubt... Whatever else went on with creatina and etc., which wasn't illegal, there was an unbelievable amount of work both done under Ventroni, the uh, the, the the marine, the uh, the guy who was in charge of Didn't fitness. Didn't they have a bell? Didn't they have a bell at the training ground where you basically had to ring the bell if you you couldn't keep going? Oh, really? You know, it's like that kind but of nobody rang. It was a sort of mentality, kind of fitness endurance kind of thing. Whereas so also they would turn up for they would do gym sessions before they even started their first training session of the day, and there was a competition to see who would get in first. Invariably, Delivio would win. Um, <laughs> Il soldatino, <laughs> soldatino, the little soldier. But they were all soldiers so, at Juve. Yeah, I mean, so I met Ventrone. Um, Luca and I went back to see him when we saw the book, and by this stage, sort of Ventrone star had had kind of dipped. I mean, that kind of idea of, of football and bulking players up and stuff had been had been sort of surpassed to some degree. Um, but it was just funny because I don't know if he was playing a character. I'd never met the guy before. But he talked about how, you know, he was working with Ukrainian swimmers or whatever. And he's like, you know what? Those guys are athletes. Eight hours a day in the pool. And like, you know, look at these sissy footballers. Like, you know, you're lucky if you get like two hours of conditioning and one hour just kicking the ball about from them, you know, and keep going on. I might say, Luca, what, is, he, is he always like this? And he says like, yeah, I think, you know, he's kind of in his own world. And working with Vintron at the time, and I think keeping a lot of people sane was his assistant, uh, this guy named Antonio Pintus, who Luca would later bring to Chelsea mm. as his um, as his fitness coach at a time when... You know, most English clubs didn't have a fitness coach. Zidane would take him through Real Madrid. He's now with Inter, with Conte. Conte, of course, naturally thrived in that environment. Right. Conte who was in that midfield behind Luca Ravanelli and Baggio del Piero. So or he was, was on the bench sometimes. Okay, or on the bench. Working on his hair. <laughs> it was he, such a, no, he, I mean, he shaved it off Gap so it could grow back stronger. And no, boy, it did. has. It worked well. <laughs> <I'm joking>. <laughs> <laughs> he took a different approach, but a more successful one. Yeah. It only yeah. comes back if God loves you. Right. So, 
So anyway, what emerged from the <laughs> red-hot heat of uh, Ventroni's Forge was a new Viali, one who, in terms of scoring spectacular goals, in terms of leading a modern football line, was even more efficient and effective than ever before. Yeah, and, and, and he really loved this side of it. He really loved the, the kind of, you know, let's go to battle. Like As I said, I take you back to what I said at the beginning. You know, if he'd not been a footballer, he probably would have been a soldier because he likes the training and the gym rat. You know, that was a big part of him growing up. I think there was an element of vanity perhaps there uh, as well in the sense that, you know, he liked to, to take his shirt off and show off his six-pack and, 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 and whatever. And that, again, that, that fit the time, that fit the mid-'90s, that fit that, that brand of football. And it's weird when you said, like, you know, you can't see the sea from Turin either. But I think he did develop a certain a certain affection for Turin and for the fact that he got to see you know the wider world or or a bigger city beyond Sampdoria as difficult as those first two years were. I mean, 1994-95, which is obviously when they they win the league title for the first time in in nine years, he has you know his second best season uh, in the league in terms of goals scored. 17 compared to when he won the league title with Sampdoria, he scored 19. Which, given that there four seasons apart and he's mm. coming towards the end of his What's Italian career. Yeah, 94, 95, yeah, he would have been 30. 30. And we should also underscore to young listeners who are used to everybody playing 4-3-3 and everything, you know, going through Aguero or whoever your center or Lewandowski or center forward is. He played in a front three with other goal scorers. So, you know, Ravanelli was... Well, Ravanelli used to score way more than center forward, yeah. And I think you'll find that young Alex Del Piero also scored a fair few goals in his career. They win how many titles? With him in his four seasons at Juve? Two, no? Two. 94, 95, 95, 96. Did they win the title then? No, or was Milan that? Did. No, Milan did, yeah. He also finishes the one. his... Capello did, in fact. And if he finds out that you took a title away from him, he's not going to be happy with you. It's fine. Ronaldo hasn't he, beaten a man in three years. <laughs> he finished his, his diploma as well. Uh, as part of his further education, which he's continued with. We'll touch on that an, another time. And once again... He plays a Champions League final, a European title game, in his final act with a club. It was Sampdoria before the game with Barcelona at Wembley. This time with Juve, he's taking on Ajax down in Rome, knowing that he's not going to be staying in Turin any longer. The club, I think, had come to him beforehand and said, we'd love you to stay. We're prepared to offer you a fifth of what you were on before. (laughs) I think it was a fifth, but he just says, they made me an offer. It was the kind of offer that said loud and clear, we'd really re- we really don't want you to stay. Yeah. And as he leaves the office, what, Christian Vieri walks through the door or <laughs> something so like that. 96, <laughs> and this is uh, end, of, end of May uh, in Rome, in the Champions League final, and, and he's feeling like a man with something to prove as he takes the field at the Stadio Olimpico? He feels that, yeah, he's got a ton to prove. He's got the fact that it's his second European Cup final after not playing very well in the one before. It's the fact that Juventus have pretty much shown him the door by, you know, offering him uh, the kind of contract, which, as he puts it, you know, is a loud and clear signal that we don't want you to sign it. You know, he's 32 years old at this stage, or he's about to turn 32. He's captain of the team as well. He's captain of the team. On top of that, he is a guy who, you know, outwardly, you would see him perhaps being slightly cool. And, you know, I remember when he came over because, I, you know, he wore V-necks. You know, the English people, like, oh, look, he's so sophisticated, you know. Um, but 
but he's a guy who gets really emotionally involved in what he does. And it takes a ton, um, it takes a ton out of him. I mean, he would talk about how later on when he became a manager, it would just consume him the whole time. You know, he'd be, he'd be eating breakfast and stuff and, you know, he'd start seeing formations and he'd start seeing like his players, you know, around him, you know, and, and so he had this it's emotional. to get out of mashed potato in the middle of the Table. Exactly, and like yeah. you know, like like you see Dennis Wise's head in there, you know, uh, or, or or worse, or or you know, yeah. nightmares of Holly, you know. So all these things coming together, I mean, he really was a bundle of nerves. And that said, and I think this doesn't just apply to him; it applies to great athletes. When you're under so much tension, um, when you've got so much stuff going on, the really good, really great athletes often manage to go and channel that, all that emotion, all that nervous energy to channel it into tremendous performance, channel it positively. And obviously that's what he was able to do. Was he able to do it? I don't remember him having a particularly good game. Well, he didn't screw things up. He didn't screw things up. But he did win. That's the main thing. I mean, well, Juve won on penalties. And every time that Juventus have been to a final since, yeah. and they've been to a lot of finals, he, think most of them. <laughs> <laughs> he always says that, you know, I want someone else who's captain of that club to lift that trophy because right. I'm the last person who's photographed lifting that trophy and his little blue shirt I mean, yeah it's a good shirt actually his time at Juve was a remarkable success story is it anything like as special to him as the Samp years that's a question for for him to answer right I mean I think the if, way he talks about it I mean when you when you talk you, about his like, backstory like he's played for five clubs if I was to guess if, oh yeah six if you count Pizzicatone <laughs> alright we'll leave let's leave out Pizzicatone for a minute but if you had to get one club tattooed, mm. I think the hierarchy would go Sampdoria, mm -hmm. Cremonese, mm -hmm. Chelsea. Um, Pizzicatone. No, enough with the Pizzicatone. <laughs> uh, Italy and Juve. Italy. I, I, I think so. I, I think that especially, you know, 80, what happened in 85, what happened in 88. Right. And what happened in Italian 90, those are, you know, the, Italy and Juventus kind of left you thinking, I mean, you know, Juventus obviously was ultimately successful and he had success there on the pitch. I think in the back of his mind kind of left him wondering what might have been. Right. You know, I don't think he regrets anything about the eight years at Sampdoria, but I think equally he realizes, wow, you know, if I'd been at another club in another era, who knows what might have happened? Who knows? I think that's only, I mean, I think that's only human. All right. Well, we'll talk about some of the things that did happen, some of the things that didn't. When we return for the next part of this Galazzo special, and Gianluca Viali, as we discuss the move to West London, the Italy years, the not Italy years, the life after football, and whether one day he's going to ride to Sampdoria's rescue. That's all coming up in the next part of our Golazzo Gianluca Viali special. For now, though, from Gabriele, James, and myself, it's many thanks for listening. And arrivederci. Campionato di calcio italiano. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>